Father God, we love you. That's why we're here. We want to hear from you. We want to, to know who you are. And we want to know the purpose to which you've called us. And so my prayer right now for me and for my friends today, Father, is that you would magnify and exalt your name with such power that we would see it clearly, who you are and what we are called to do in this world, Father God. From a, a brief passage in the book of Ruth, Father, you can take it and you can open up our eyes and our hearts for us to be transformed by it. So I ask that you would do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. After being invited to a dinner by a Pharisee in Luke 14, Jesus says this, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please, please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So Jesus when spurred by a statement about feasting in the kingdom of God, Jesus responds, as he often does, with an illustration, a parable. And this parable is often referred to as the parable of the great banquet. I think a better uh, title for it might be the parable of the great house. So this man throws a, a party, throws a banquet, uh, seeking that his house would be filled with guests, and so he invites many sends out invitations, presumably they agree, and then on the day of, when he goes to invite them over to the house saying everything's prepared, they begin to offer excuses and decline the invitation, say they can't make it. And it's from this rejection of the master uh, of the house that he sends out his servant to seek out the poor, the crippled, the lame, the outcasts of society, and bring these people who have been afflicted and rejected into his house. 
And so the servant does this, but even after doing this, there's still room in the house. There's still room in his house, and there's still space for the banquet. And so the master gives his servant one more command. He says to his servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That's the master's goal. That's his purpose, is that his house would be filled, and he's not content until that happens. He wants his house to be filled with guests. Whatever it takes, he tells his servant, compel them, drag them in. And so this subject of a house being filled is, interestingly enough, where we find ourselves today in the book of Ruth, which we've been exploring since the beginning of the year. And we're now really getting into the final closing scenes of this book. So Boaz, just for some context, has just redeemed Ruth to be his wife. And in doing this, in in Boaz redeeming her and marrying her, he is preventing the name of her family from being cut off. He saved her family. That's what he's done here. Uh, she uh, was both Ruth and Naomi, if you remember, had returned from Moab and they'd come to Bethlehem and Naomi says when she comes back from Bethlehem or from Moab, I returned empty. I returned with nothing. And what he's doing here, Boaz, by marrying Ruth is he's saving her and just like the parable, he is redeeming her so that her house will not be empty, but that it will be filled. And this house, like I just said, includes Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, Naomi said, I returned empty, but that's not going to be the case anymore. She has been redeemed with Ruth. And here in chapter 4, after wave upon wave of brutal providence that has come across uh, Ruth and Naomi's life and caused their house to be in ruin, we now have this redemption realized. Now keep in mind, if you can, the state of their family before uh, this redemption occurred. It was bleak. It was bleak. They had no heir. Um, The house was literally on the verge of extinction. But now, since Boaz has redeemed Ruth, all of that is going to change. And when he redeems her, there's these elders, these people that are at the gate that are witnessing what's going down here. And as he redeems her, they issue a blessing over his house, over Ruth's house as well. And it's an incredible blessing in response to this bold act of redemption that Boaz goes out on. And so that's where we find ourselves today. So turn with me to Ruth 4. We're going to look at verse 9. Ruth 4, verse 9. Some of this we covered last week, um, so it'll be a little bit of a repeat, but uh, we're going to get to verses 11 and 12, which will be the heart of what we're looking at today. It says in verse 9, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, her husband, and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, her two sons. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. 
you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So with Boaz's stunning act of redemption, his, his rescuing of Ruth, um, both Ruth and Naomi are now restored. They have a future. They have hope. They are grafted into his house, and in doing this, it allows for Naomi's family to survive. There will be an heir to Naomi's family. There will be an heir in her household, despite the fact that her husband and her two sons are dead. And so when these people at the gate see this happen, they respond with a blessing. And we know this is a blessing because they begin with, may the Lord. They're asking God to do this. And they end with, that the Lord will give. This is, this is a prayer. This is a hope. This is a blessing that God would graciously move on their behalf, on the behalf of Boaz and Ruth, and do all of the things that he needs to do to restore that family and, restore, and actually build up Boaz's family. So in this blessing, these, these witnesses reach back into history, into the history of their people, and they bring forward these two houses, the house of Israel and the house of Perez. And they're asking God to do to the house of Boaz, to Boaz and Ruth's home, exactly what he did in these two other houses. And uh, this whole week, if I'm honest with you, I struggled with these two verses, because not because they don't have anything in them, but because there's so much we could do with these two verses. And uh, I realized... Uh, that I had to actually split up this sermon into two. And so this week, what I want to do is I want to focus on verse 11. And next week, I want to focus on verse 12. There's too much in these two verses for us to simply spend one Sunday. And so um, if that sounds good to you, that's how I want to handle it. Here's verse 11 again one more time. We'll look at it in isolation. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, that's Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So that's what we're going to focus on today. So the blessing here is that God would make Ruth, who is the woman who's coming into Boaz's house, like these two women, Rachel and Leah. And they say, of course, that Rachel and Leah built up the house of Israel. Now, the house of Israel is, of course, what they're talking about there is the 12 brothers who belong to Jacob, Israel, and they are the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So um, when we talk about building up, they're talking about those first 12 sons and then all the people that would come after them. And this is the first part of their blessing. So the main question we have today is, is really this, what is it about the house of Israel and about Rachel and Leah that lead to them wanting to bless Ruth and Boaz this way? Why mention that to, to Boaz? Why mention it about Ruth? Why focus on that aspect of their history uh, for this blessing? Well, to find that answer, what we really need to do is we need to, we need to know why the house of Israel came into being in the first place. What's the purpose of that house? And 
we find that answer, of course, in the book of Genesis. And I, and I think there what we'll see here is that the house of Israel didn't begin with Rachel and didn't begin with Leah and didn't begin with even Israel. It began with a man named Abram, Jacob's grandfather. And so let's turn to Genesis 12. We'll have it on the screen here. And I want to look at verse 1 through 3, where Abram encounters God. Listen to what it says here. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Lord, and that word Lord there is in Hebrew, the divine name of God, Yahweh, the one true God, comes to Abram and he tells him to leave his father's house. And he says, I want you to go into a land that I'm going to show you. And in this land, I'm going to make you, Abram, into a great nation. You won't just get a house in return. You're leaving your father's house. You're not just going to get a house in return. I'm going to make you into a nation. And through that nation, through Abram, in that nation, God will bless Abram in such an extraordinary way that he himself will become a blessing to other peoples. It says here, in him, that is in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, to underscore the weight of this blessing, to underscore the magnitude of this blessing, I want to look at Genesis 15, 5, when God appears to Abraham again, or Abram again. It says this in Genesis 5, 15, 5, and he brought, God brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. So here, as Abraham, or Abram gets, I'm going to keep on making a mistake <laughs> until he actually gets his name changed. As Abram uh, gets older and has no offspring, he begins to worry and get concerned. God promised to make his house into a nation and he doesn't even have one son yet by this time in in the book of Genesis. And so God, who isn't worried about this, who isn't concerned about the odds or the obstacles in making this happen, brings Abram outside his tent and he shows him the stars in heaven. I love this scene. One of my favorite scenes in all of scripture. And he tells Abram, I want you to count the stars if you're able. Count the stars if you're able. I love how God talks. If you, if you read uh, enough of Scripture, you start to hear the voices of the characters before you know who's talking and you know who they are. God always talks like this. He always asks rhetorical questions and he always delights in showing his power and greatness even, in, uh, even despite our weakness and despite our inability to trust him that he's able to do exactly what he wants to do. And this scene's no different. He brings Abram out and he asks him a simple question. Can you number the stars, Abram? The obvious answer is no, I can't. There are too many of them. 
It's a rhetorical question. He can't count the stars, and so God says, well, that's how many offspring you're going to have. The stars in heaven. That's how many offspring, and I'm promising you, Abram, that I'm going to make it happen. And so again, we see God promises Abram, I'm going to make your house full, so full that the only equivalent that you can conceive of is to look up into the sky at night and count the stars. That's the only, that's the only proxy analogy I can give you. Look at the stars. And so, again, we see this promise. Now, the first, if the first two promises that God makes to Abram are not enough, if they're not sufficient, we have yet another one in Genesis 17. Now listen to this. Genesis 17, verse 1 says, When Abram was about 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is easily one of the most extraordinary and important events in all of Scripture. God appears to Abram again, and this time he begins with one statement. I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. We're going to see this same statement again. Before making a covenant with Abram, before making a promise with him, he wants to tell Abram who he is. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai in the Hebrew. I am all-powerful and sovereign. There is nothing in the universe, nothing in the universe that can stop me from accomplishing my purposes, God says. Even a 99-year-old man who is, as the book of Romans will tell us later, as good as dead, has no child, no heir, that doesn't stop God. Those facts do not scare him at all. In fact, he likes the odds this way. This gives him the most runway to display his glory and his beauty and his power. He desires to show himself to be the kind of God who can love in a limitless way. And the purpose to which God's omnipotent power is directed here, he doesn't just say the statement, he is going to direct it to Abram's good. He desires to use his infinite power to bless Abram and his house. And we know Abram feels something of the weight here because he falls on his face flat and begins to presumably worship. The creator and the sustainer of the universe has just told him, my power is limitless, and I've decided to use it to bless you, Abram. That's how I've decided to exert my power. It is a staggering display of love and grace and unmerited affection. And so 
while changing Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. And Abraham means father of many. It's in this moment that God here initiates a covenant with him. He's going to make him the father of a multitude of nations. Not just one nation. Not just one body of people, but many bodies of people. The house of Abraham will be a multitude of nations. And to, me make, sure, to, to make sure that he's clear, God actually says a variation of this five times in the text. A multitude of nations, a multitude of nations, many nations. He says this five times over seven verses, just so Abraham knows what's happening here. There's clarity. God is promising Abraham that his house will be exceedingly full and that nations, even kings, will come from him. This is God's promise to Abraham. And according to verse 7, it is an everlasting covenant, which means this promise will never end. It is everlasting. Now, the reason this aspect of the covenant is really critical for us, especially in Genesis 17, is because Abraham never sees these nations. He will never see with his own eyes, as he's living, these nations. He has one son that carries his promise. That son's name is Isaac. And that's effectively, when we talk about this blessing, the house of Abraham. Him, his wife, Sarah, and their son, Isaac. That's what God's going to use to build nations. And Isaac himself has only two sons. And of those two sons, Jacob and Esau, only one of them is given the blessing. The same blessing that Abraham had goes to Isaac, and that blessing goes to Jacob. And this is where things pick up. This is where we start to see God's promises materialize. And here it is, we also see now, finally, the house that we saw mentioned in Ruth 4, the house of Israel. So Jacob after betraying his brother Esau, and I want to enumerate all the details of that story. You probably already know it from Sunday school. Um, he flees his own father's house. He flees the house of, of Isaac. And he leaves his family and he heads to a place called Padan Aram. And when he's in Padan Aram, he, he falls in love with one of his, his uncle's daughters, uh, a woman by the name of Rachel. And to, to take her and redeem her for himself for marriage he labors seven years for Laban, her, his uncle. He works for him seven full years, takes the girl's hand in marriage, but on the, the night of the marriage, his uncle pulls a fast one and gives his eldest daughter, Leah, to Jacob, who Jacob did not want to marry. And although he marries Rachel afterward, and so he has two wives, and we start to see now the promises of God taking shape, Jacob loves Rachel, and he does not love Leah. And these are the main characters that we see in the Ruth 4 passage that we were looking at. So in Genesis 29, 31, we see God's response to Jacob's embracing of Rachel and his hatred or disregard to Leah. It says in Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 
And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name will be called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now after these four sons are born, Rachel's womb is finally opened by God. He graciously allows her to conceive. She has children. Both of these women have even more children through their maidservants, and they have 12 sons in all. These sons are ultimately what form the house of Israel, the house we've been looking at. They are the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel. And what we have in this passage in Genesis 29 is just the first four sons being born. I think it's worth us pausing and just noting here, why isn't Rachel the first to have a son? Jacob didn't even like Leah. And yet, Rachel isn't isn't the first to have a son. It's clear from verse 31 that both women were initially unable to conceive. Um, So why was Leah given that blessing first? Well, the obvious answer is in the text, the first verse that we read. And that is that Leah was hated. God saw Leah's affliction and he saw her her tragic state of being disregarded by her own husband, disregarded by her, her younger sister, and he met her in the middle of her affliction and healed her. And he heals Leah first and gives her four sons. So his healing isn't isn't uh, indiscriminate. Um, The first thing we need to actually look at is this. Um, God is the one who gives this house the sons. It isn't Leah building up the house on her own strength. It isn't Rachel building up the house on her own strength. It is God. He had to heal them both. Almighty God, El Shaddai, had to come in and heal them both. The second thing is this. He doesn't heal indiscriminately. Look at how he heals. He heals Leah first, and he gives her four sons, the first four sons of Israel. And he does this because he desires to display his power on behalf of the broken. Think about this. She goes through these four sons, and in each of the first three, she is saying her naming of them as they're born is something to the effect of, maybe now my husband will love me. Maybe now he'll be attached to me. Maybe now he'll care for me. And finally, at the end, she says, this time I will praise the Lord as though something has happened in the heart of Jacob somewhere along the line. And he finally realizes, I've done something wrong here. Leah was an outcast. She was hated and afflicted. God saw this and he moved Leah is no different than the people that we saw in the parable in Luke 14 at the beginning. She is, just like uh, the master of the house said, go out, get the, the lame, the crippled, the broken. She is broken. This is God's MO. He does this. 
Who are the broken people here? Who are the outcasts? Who are the people who are being disregarded? I want to go to them and I want to heal them and love them. And so six chapters after this healing and after this family is being in, it's in the process of being built up, we see that God isn't done with Jacob. He's got one more thing he wants to say to Jacob. He's not done with this family. He's not done with the house of Israel. Look at verse 35, or chapter, uh, Genesis 35, verse 9. It says this, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. So in an event that really in a lot of ways mirrors almost identically some of the things that that God said to Abraham years earlier happens here. He goes to Jacob. He changes Jacob's name to Israel. He reminds him of the promises that he's made already. And he commands Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. He tells him there's there's a nation that's going to come from your body. A company of nations, even kings, will come from you. It's almost identical to uh, Genesis 17, which we saw him do this. God do the same thing with Abraham. And the reason that Jacob can trust this promise from God is because this is, in fact, again, God Almighty. This isn't a weakling God. This is the Almighty God. He is El Shaddai. And if he wasn't the Almighty God, then Jacob would have reason to doubt. Jacob should doubt. But God reaffirms his power here. And in part, Jacob already knows this because he married two women who were unable to conceive. And those two women have built up the house of Israel. He has 12 sons. And this is what the elders and the witnesses of Ruth 4 are remembering in their minds as they bless Boaz, as they bless Ruth, they're remembering what happened here, what God did here. If you recall, they said, may the Lord make Ruth, who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. They're asking God to give to Ruth what he gave to Rachel and what he gave to Leah. This isn't And this isn't just like a generic blessing either. Think about this for a second. If you recall, Ruth was married to her previous husband. Chapter 1, verse 4 of Ruth says for 10 years. And yet she had no children. Why do we suppose that is? Why was that the case? Well, chapter 4, verse 13 of Ruth tells us why. It says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. She bore a son. So in order for Ruth to have any children, God had to give her conception, just like he did with Leah, just like he did with Rachel. Before that, Ruth was unable to have any children, but God stepped in, again stepping into the picture, again healing the broken person, and giving her conception. Otherwise, in other, in other words, the blessing that the uh, witnesses have given to Ruth, whether they realize it or not, has been answered powerfully by God. Boaz and Ruth are going to have a son. 
God is going to give them an heir. She's going to have a son, but the question we have today is, is Boaz's house built up through Ruth just like Rachel and Leah's house is, was built up or built up the house of Israel? And the answer to that question is this. We, de- we actually don't know. We do not know what Boaz and Ruth's house fully looked like. The only child we know that Ruth has is a son named Obed. We don't know if Boaz's immediate house was built up uh, at all. We do know that Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And of all the houses in Israel, David's is easily one of the most renowned and honored houses. So as far as Boaz's house is concerned, this blessing is fulfilled in a very real and meaningful way in his life through his grandson. It happens. But the author doesn't feel inclined to tell us anything beyond that. We don't know what Boaz and Ruth's house looked like outside of that, the fact that it pointed to David's house. But here's the question that we really want to center on as we, as we head towards the end. The question is this. How from Israel and Boaz and David will there be a multitude of nations? Does God actually accomplish that? Remember, the blessing that he gave to to Jacob is the same blessing that he gave to Abraham. Um, The blessing that he told Abraham in, in, in Genesis 17 was, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. And the blessing that he gave Jacob in Genesis 29 was that a company of nations would come from you. Did that happen through Boaz? Did that happen through David? This is the same blessing, and this is the same house. And so, where is that promise in this story? And the reason this story doesn't answer it fully is because it doesn't happen in Boaz's house, and it doesn't happen in David's house. Neither of those houses become a multitude of nations. Yet God told Abraham, in you, all the families of the world will be blessed. And so how does he do that? Well, Boaz's background is actually interesting. Um, In the book of Ruth, we actually don't get a full understanding of his story. But in the book of Matthew, Matthew 1, we see the genealogy of the Messiah. And in Matthew 1, Matthew mentions Boaz. And he mentioned, he takes an opportunity to actually mention Boaz's mother. Do you know who his mother is? I wonder if you guys know this. Does anybody know? Okay, what? A lot of you do. Okay, good. You've done your homework. Um, oh, I did say it before. Okay, awesome. Uh, <laughs> I've forgotten. Her name is Rahab. Ruth, or Boaz's mother is Rahab. It says in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Matthew, that Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And there's really only one Rahab in the Old Testament that this could possibly be. She was not an Israelite. She was not of the house of Israel. She was actually a, a prostitute in the city of Jericho, and she belonged to a people who had rejected God. They were outside God's covenant. They were outside the house of Israel. And she was in, like I said, an occupation that whether through financial necessity, whether through some sort of cultural demand, 
put her in a place of disrepute and a place of dishonor. She was an outcast. And yet when the house of Israel approaches the city of Jericho to take it back, it's their city, she sees that the God of Israel is in fact El Shaddai. He is the Almighty God. And when she sees that, she abandons her people and her gods and she embraces the nation of Israel, the house of Israel. Which is exactly, if you remember, what Ruth did in chapter 1 of this book. She abandoned the people of Moab, she abandoned the gods of Moab, and she joins the house of Israel, worshiping the one true God. And so at some point for Rahab, she married this man, this dude, Salmon, which is an awful name. Um, And they have a son named Boaz, and Boaz is the one who redeems Ruth the Moabite, who left her gods, comes under the wings of Yahweh, the Hebrew God, just as Rahab had done back in Jericho. Both Rahab and Ruth were outside the house of Israel. They were outside every blessing that God had given them, given the house of Israel. Yet God showed them great mercy and brought them in. Rahab was redeemed from the city of Jericho and from her occupation as a prostitute, from the life that had defined her there. She was redeemed and brought in. And Ruth was redeemed from the loss of her husband. And the reason that this is important is because that means that in the story of Ruth, we actually are seeing a glimpse of God moving and making good on the promise that he gave Abraham and Jacob. The blessing for Abraham and Jacob wasn't just for the house of Israel. The blessing for Abraham and Jacob was that a multitude of nations would be blessed, that God would bless a multitude of peoples through this house. And what that means is this. God's plan wasn't just for the house of Israel, for the house of Jacob. God's plan wasn't just for the house of Abraham. God's plan was to build his own house. That was his plan the entire time. The entire ultimate purpose of the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Israel, with Jacob, was to build up the house of God and to fill it with every tribe, every tongue, every nation in the world. That was God's design, which means that this house exists by the power of God and for the name of God. That's what this house is for. And there is, we didn't cover it, but there's already a hint in uh, the passage that we read in Genesis 29 when God met Jacob. When God met Jacob and changed his name to Israel, he met him in a place that is called Bethel. Bethel, which in Hebrew means house of God. A house for the name of God. So God's plan, even from the beginning, wasn't just to give Abraham a big house. It wasn't just to give Israel a big house, Jacob a big house. It was a house that belonged to him, a house for his name. And so when we see this blessing spoken of over Boaz and over Ruth and over their house, when we see that, this blessing shows us the power of God in building the house of Israel, not only from those two barren women, but we actually get a glimpse of God building his own house and we see his passion to fill it. So do you remember Luke 14, the parable that that I read earlier? 
the master of the house, throwing this banquet for, his, uh, banquet for people, inviting people in, says to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes and the cities, the city, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Go out in the highway and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This is God's priority. This has always been God's priority from day one, that his house would be filled. And he starts with the most broken, the most crippled people. He starts with people like Rahab. He starts with people like Leah. People like Ruth, who are discarded and otherwise despised, but they're not discarded by him. He refuses to let them go. He loves them, and through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Boaz and eventually David, God was building his house. This was his plan from day one. It wasn't ultimately about their houses. They had a part to play. It was about ultimately a house for his name. And we know this is true because we have a New Testament. And the New Testament enumerates this multiple times. I'll give you one example this week, and then we'll talk about more next week. In Ephesians 2, for example, Paul tells us not only what God's house is comprised of, what is God's household, but he tells us and explains to us how it is that God actually built this house. Verse 16 says that Jesus came that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Then he says something amazing. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow members of the household of God. There are many incredible things we could look at in this text, but as we close, I want to focus on just two very simple things. The first one is this. So if you get anything from today, God willing, please listen to these two things. The first one is this. We are the house of God. That's us. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are this household. Every other relationship that you have in the world, every other affiliation you have in the world, pales in comparison to this one thing. You belong in the house of God. You belong to God's house. You are part of his household. You are part of his family. You belong to him. The second thing in this passage is this. God built this house by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 says, Christ reconciled us to God through the cross. So you look at a word like the cross there, and it's just two words. But the enormity of that cost the cost to build this house. Every stone that he bought to build this house, we are all stones in this house. Every stone 
cost the cross. That's how much it cost to build this house, the cross of Jesus Christ. In the story of Rachel and Leah, God built that house by giving them conception, giving them life. In the story of Ruth, God again builds that house by giving her the ability to conceive a baby. But in order to build his own house, God didn't give life in the same way. He had to purchase life by taking the life of his son, who the book of Acts refers to as the author of life. That was the cost in order to build this house, which is why the master in Luke 14 responds the way he does to the rejection of the invitation. That's why he's so angry at his rejection. He gave his son's life to pay for the invitation. It cost his son his life to pay for this banquet. And so he says to the servant, my house isn't going to be empty. I refuse to allow my house to be empty. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house will be filled. Compel people. Start with the most broken and work your way in. Compel people to come in because this house was bought by the blood of my only beloved son and I refuse to allow it to remain empty. So this house was made for the name of God and bought by the blood of the Son of God. And that's what this house is. The house that we see in Ruth 4 pushes forward through human history, echoing from all the promises we heard in Genesis and manifesting in what Jesus Christ bought on the cross. So think about this for a moment. We are his house We are where God wants to dwell. You and I belong to him. In a few moments, we're going to take communion, the Lord's Supper. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ and you belong, you've trusted in Christ to to bring you into the household of God, then I'm going to invite you to take the elements. And what I'd like you to do is this Sunday is consider two things. Consider these two things about what you're going to do in the act of communion. First, I want you to consider the immense joy of being part of the household of God. Do you know that most of the world cannot say that about themselves? A vast majority of the human beings who have ever lived will not be able to say that they're part of the household of God. But you can. Is that not amazing? He saved you and redeemed you. You are part of this house. So consider that and do everything you can to feel the weight of that. It's not an abstract reality. This is who our family will be 10,000 ages of years into the future. It is real. And then secondly, the thing we need to recognize about the filling up of the house of Ruth as a pointer to the filling up of the house of God is that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot stop with us. 
The good news can't just terminate on us and not go anywhere else. There are broken people in this world. There are outcasts. There are people who have been slung to the side of their communities of humanity and they need to experience and see the love of Jesus Christ. They need that. They need to be compelled to come into his house. They need to be told there's still room. There's still room. God is saying through the story of Ruth that he desires for his house to be filled. There is still room in his house. And there are people that we know, all of us know, there are individuals that we know that God has specifically placed us near, geographically, in our workplace, throughout our lives. You know them, and in fact, right now, for some of you, their faces are popping up in your head. You know them. There are people that he has put you near, And they need to know that there's room in his house. They need to know that. They need to know that more than they need to know anything else in their lives. They need to know that he loves them, that he sent his son to die for them, and he loves them just like he loved you and desires them to come into the house and to taste the banquet that he's bought with the blood of his son. Let's pray. Father, the the magnitude of the things that we look at every Sunday are so far beyond my ability to explain them that I feel my weakness very keenly. It is not an overstatement to say that these things are infinitely important. that there are eternal realities at stake. Either an eternal joy sitting at your table, feasting on your banquet, or an eternal separation in agony without our God and Savior. I pray that we would not look lightly on those eternal realities, that we would see them for what they are, and that that would cause us to look at the cross and recognize the cost that God paid to open and fill his house for us is beyond our wildest imaginations. Therefore, Let us embrace with joy what he's done for us and go out into the hedges and into the highways to the crippled, to the lame, to the blind, to the outcast, to the forsaken, to the afflicted and let us compel them to come into your house to experience the joy of knowing Jesus Christ that your house may be filled. In the name of Jesus, amen.